Good morning. I bring you greetings from churches in Sacramento Presbytery in Northern California, where I was last week. So last week, as you know, was uh, the celebration, the 50th anniversary, right, of the moon landing. So this particular congregation that I worshiped with had a special communion service because there was a personal connection, good friends, with Buzz Aldrin, who was, as you might or might not know, was a Presbyterian elder who had received permission from the clerk, the moderator of the General Assembly at the time, who was that, James Edwards, maybe? Received permission to serve communion outside the bounds, (laughs) which is what Presbyterians have to do. You know, if you're going to go somewhere else, you do need permission. And he had it. So if you remember, 50 years ago, you remember that there was a broadcast, and then there was about eight minutes of silence. And some people knew what was going on, some other people didn't, and thought, oh, we lost connection and they're gone. That wasn't the case. They were taking communion at the time, which is pretty interesting. Also, the musical selections were incredible. When I Wish Upon a Star was the first. Of course, you're in California. They're going they're to play that. And then Fly Me to the Moon, which is a great one, Henry Mancini, right? And Moon Over Miami. It was great. It was, it, was a, it was an interesting service. It was really good. We're coming back to Earth, though. This morning begins our summer sermon series uh, concluding book. We are opening up Paul's letter to the Romans. And we will spend the next six weeks, and that's what we have left of summer, so to say. Six weeks of Romans. Uh, well, there's 16 chapters in Romans, so we're going to do a fair amount of coverage. And we begin this morning in the middle portion of the first chapter with Paul's words to Christians, some who he knew and some who he didn't, who were in that first congregation in Rome. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his Son, is my witness that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers, asking that by God's will I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. For I am longing to see you so that I may share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you or rather, so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, Hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So last week, I was out in California at at, uh, Lake Tahoe. Actually, Nevada is where Conference Center is, separate point across the lake. And as I do when I go out there, I take my bike because usually on Wednesdays, 
we have Wednesday afternoon off, so I have a chance to go ahead and it takes four hours and 45 minutes to circumnavigate the lake. It has done the past three years. This past conference, though, they gave us the entire afternoon and evening off, which is pretty neat. So I had more time to go around and explore. So not just go around the lake, but kind of wanted to see what else was around there a little bit. So I got on the other side, over on the California side, where there was a road that wasn't too steep. And I just started going up to see what was there. And of course, what caught my eye was not a scenic vista or a wild animal, but a church sign. Yeah, this is going to happen. And it was just a simple church sign, and the little church was back in the roads and the pines. Little clapboard church, 100 people or so I think could fit in there. And it says community church, and then down below it's got the pastor's name, and then it says worship, 11 a.m. But the three words in the middle, and it looked like it was kind of permanently painted there. It wasn't the sermon for the day. The three words were, no sin here. In all caps. That caused me to think <laughs> for the rest of the day and up until this very moment. So I'm, I'm thinking, okay, no sin here. Is that to attract people in there so that, you know, this is a sin-free zone? I can walk in and poof, it all just vanishes? Or are, are these people there above the law? You know, or, you know, what is it that's going on with those three words that's kind of a captivating message? And then I think... I wonder if there are any churches down at Ocean City or up at Deep Creek Lake, resort churches where no sin here. Is that is that a good one? So I'm, I've been pondering that. And then, of course, as I'm riding along, I'm thinking, hey, that's perfect for the summer sermon series on Paul. And especially in Romans. Because, boy, do we get dealings with sin a, a whole lot. So it really served for me as a great conduit. To, to this sermon series, because Paul is very explicit in the way he addresses the issue of sin. Maybe not so much right here in his opening verses, but believe you me, we will be getting to it. So I've got to back up a little bit and, and, and begin to introduce the, the nature of Paul's letter to the Romans, because that context is really important. So he begins to write this letter around 56 or so. When he is in Corinth, in the past weeks now, we've been reading through his letter to the Corinthians, and here it is, he's, he's sitting there in Corinth, and he writes for a number of reasons. He writes to introduce himself, because he expects to go to Rome later on, on his way to Spain, is what he hopes, which doesn't ever happen, really. He also writes, as he writes in many cases, to let people know about the collection that is to be gathered to be taken to Jerusalem. And apparently, as it goes, he's sitting in Corinth. He eventually gets some of the collection from folks in, in Rome. And then, in fact, he does go to Jerusalem. That's his other trip. And then he comes back again through Corinth and then eventually does make his way to Rome. But this letter is before that. Perhaps most importantly in this letter is that this is the one time that he sits and writes almost a systematic theology. He really begins to put his thoughts and beliefs down in a very specific, concrete way, addressing many parts of faith, not just sin, 
but he addresses a lot of the dynamics that are, that are going on in this first incarnation of the church. Now, it's pretty interesting in, in reading through the letter, kind of back and forth again and again, because the more you read it, the more you understand who it is that he is addressing. Sometimes in letters, sometimes in documents, it's as important to know who it is that, that someone is writing to is what the content is. And in this case, in, in Romans, I think it really applies. Because you don't know who he's writing to until the very end of the letter. Ancient letters are different than modern letters. He gives a, kind of an opening greeting at the beginning. In the very last chapter, in chapter 16, then he sends his salutations to 27 people. So we have this long list of names, nine of whom are women, and... Biblical historians have gone nuts with this list and trying to figure out who these people really were. Most important of all, though, is Phoebe, because she is the one who is going to deliver the letter, and he says that very explicitly. So you have Phoebe, who's been with him in Corinth, who is then going to not just deliver the letter, because in the ancient world it wasn't just that a person handed over this scroll or whatever, that person actually went to the congregation, whatever this is, where it's going to be presented, and that person actually read the letter to everybody else because, no, you know, they didn't have it on the radio or their iPhone or whatever else. So she is the one who reads the letter to the congregation. Not only that, Beverly Gaventa, she's the one who I quote on the opening bulletin cover. She's written the best book about Romans, if you want to pick one up. The book is called When in Romans... And it's a really great, it's a really great commentary. Beverly says that it was also the practice, and this makes a lot of sense, it's also the practice that when an author sat down to write a document like this, they did not do so alone. I think you see the Rembrandt paintings of Paul just sitting in a solitary place, all dark and kind of scribing with a quill pen, which I don't think he had a quill pen. But they didn't do it in a solitary way. They did this with a group of people, and, and they did this with the person who was going to do the presentation of the letter, so that person would know what the author is really talking about, so that person would know something of the nuances in the letter. So Phoebe is, you know, I, I think saying she's a co-author might be stretching it, but she is a participant in the writing of the, this letter, and surely in the presentation of this letter. So surely, in some way, shape, or form, Phoebe, as, as she's well known as a deacon, probably held a little bit higher position. Uh, you know, deacon was a, was a bigger position than we might think in the early church in Rome and in Corinth and in everywhere else. So that's something about the personalities involved. Also, interesting and important is that Paul, in this opening address, mentions Jews and Greeks and barbarians. It's also a little bit of history that's interesting and important here in the dynamic of the Church of Rome because it was not long before, maybe seven or eight years before, under the reign of Claudius, the Jews were expelled from Rome. There was word going around of a belief in a person named Crestus, and this is from a Roman historian named Suetonius, who said that this Crestus had been killed and somehow was raised from the dead. And the Jews began believing in this. And Claudius thought this a threat and had all the Jews removed from Rome. 
and this is when the church had already started. So the Gentiles then were the ones who really were the rulers, the governors, the governing body, the boards, were all filled with Gentiles. And then Claudius dies. He's poisoned by his adopted 17-year-old son, Nero. He dies. Nero is the new emperor. And Nero says, come back, everybody. All's forgiven. So now you have a congregation that for seven or eight years has been governing itself without a contingent of people. These people have returned. And the question is, oh, what do we do with them? You know, I'm an officer now, and I'm going to give up my seat for that person? So it's pretty important to know that as we move along through Romans, because it's just not theological issues or doctrinal issues. It's also governance that is part of a logjam that's happening in that church of Rome. So those are a couple dynamics. Most important of all, though, in this opening salvo that Paul sends to Roman Christians is his notion of faith. And this is really important. And he uses a phrase that I don't think he uses again. He says it's righteousness revealed for faith through faith. And I was having the hardest time trying to figure what that phrase really means. And again, Beverly is very helpful because he is not talking about our individual personal faith. In talking about who Jesus Christ is, it is much bigger than ourselves alone and it's even much bigger than we as a collective. Jesus Christ is God's expression of faith to us. Jesus is a gift to us. Not that we believe in him. That that wouldn't make much sense to Paul. Believing in Jesus would be just like saying, I believe in Nero or Claudius, or I believe that the earth is round or that water is wet or the sky is blue. Belief is, eh, that doesn't matter so much. What is important to Paul and what is important to the Christians in Rome is that Belief, the word pistis, really has to do with loyalty. To whom do you give your allegiance? To whom do you bend the knee? To whom do you praise? Now, also in this, historically, the words that we use for Lord and Savior, salvation and gospel, those were all Roman legal words that were used in reference to the emperor. The emperor was the Lord and Savior. The emperor was your salvation. The good news, the gospel, was all about the accomplishments of the emperor. So Paul co-ops those words and puts those in reference to who Jesus is. And as Paul does that, he basically writes his own death sentence. And as followers in Jesus follow Paul and say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, they are saying, I am more loyal to Jesus than anyone else, anyone, you know, even the emperor. So faith is a collective faith. It's a faith of the whole congregation, and it's a faith that is initiated by God. We wouldn't have any faith unless there was Jesus, a a Savior given to us in the first place, so that we have someone to have faith in, someone who was raised from the dead, who gives us grace, who calls us together to live in his name and to work and to serve through him. That's where Paul begins. That's how he gets us started. So the gift of God is a gift that came 
way back then. It continues through us and will move long, long ahead from now into the future. That's our beginning through Paul in God's name. Amen.